Good day, and welcome to Facts Matter, the Citizens Research Council of Michigan podcast. I'm Nancy Derringer, Communications Director for the Research Council, and in this podcast, we look at Michigan through a policy lens. Our discussions here are informed by our 102 years of experience doing nonpartisan fact-based research on policy issues. We hope this podcast will serve as another way for the public to access our work, which is, as always, free and available to all at our website, crcmich.org. My guest today is Jordan Newton, a researcher here at the Council, who recently did the work updating the Outline of the Michigan Tax System, a document we revise annually. We've done this every year since the latest state constitution was adopted in 1963, Maybe we should start our discussion by talking about why we do that. Jordan, welcome, and uh, tell us why we take this step every year. Thank you, Nancy. Um, A large portion of it is just kind of the difficulty of the tax code in Michigan and trying to wrap your head around it. There are 64 taxes that the state and localities are authorized to administer each year. And with that, there's a lot of difficulty trying to find information on every single one of them. Organizations that administer these taxes have information published, but it's not always the easiest to find. And trying to find one simple source that has all of it put together is a little bit difficult. So we decided to put together this outline to kind of condense it all into one place where you could find what taxes the state authorizes, how much revenue they collect on each of these taxes each year, and kind of give a little bit of an idea of what they're taxing and kind of what the base and rate for these are. Mm -hmm. And what changes from year over year. Yeah, exactly. Right. Okay. So here we are. It's 2018, and we're looking at the year gone by. Um, Of those 64 different taxes uh, that state and local governments in Michigan are free to levy, which you just mentioned, what changed in 2017? Not much really changed in 2017. There were a couple of minor fixes to clarify a couple of statutes and to change the way some things worked. Uh, There was an administrative rule change that made it so that dental prosthetics were no longer exempt from the sales and use tax, and the legislature decided to exempt those um, and reinstitute that exemption. Uh, There were also a couple of tax incentive programs uh, with the Good Jobs Act and the Transformational Brownfields Plan. But ultimately, it was a very minor year in terms of tax changes, Uh, even compared to so far in 2018, where we've had the overhaul of the personal exemption and the acceleration of the phase out of the tax on the difference. On that particular, uh, the personal exemption, this was something that was sparked by the federal tax overhaul that was, um, that went through Congress in the last days of 2017. Can you explain that as as simply and clearly as possible, why that was necessary? Yeah, so the federal overhaul eliminated the federal personal exemption. The way it was written in Michigan statute had it so that the state's personal exemption was based entirely off of the number of exemptions you claimed on your federal tax form. The concern was that now that the personal exemption was zero on the federal tax form, they wouldn't even start collecting that data, and that even if they did, people might not necessarily record it 100% accurately. So they had to change it so that they uh, had a way to calculate it themselves so that the tax exemption didn't just disappear in Michigan. They used that as an opportunity to kind of increase the exemption as well, give a little bit of a tax break to everyone in Michigan. I see. Okay. 
You know, um, taxation is one of those topics that um, is cast politically in very stark terms. You know, taxes are bad, taxes are too high, taxes are too low. Um, But if you look at a state's taxation as a whole, you can glean some insights into what its policymakers value and what they're trying to accomplish and so on. So in other words, it can be a fairly subtle picture. Now, in the past, uh, Michigan governors have used tax policy to try to fine-tune the state's economy, and this happened a lot in recent years as the state went through its long recession. Can you talk about a few of those? Yeah, so there is a pretty long history of Michigan using the tax code as part of its economic development policy. Uh, Tax credits such as the Michigan Economic Growth Authority tax credits, uh, a couple of film tax credits, some energy tax credits, farmland tax credits are all kind of programs that have been offered. Uh, And these provided, you know, either incentives to increase jobs or incentives to get specific industries into the state. Okay. But when Rick Snyder ran for governor, he made eliminating those targeted tax credits part of his platform. I believe the phrase that he used over and over was, it's not our business to pick winners and losers. Um, What was, can you expand on that argument that he made when he was running in 2010 a little deeper? Yeah, so the way that it ended up working out is you had administrative agencies deciding who got these tax credits. And in a lot of situations, it can get a little bit politicized or these agencies have certain industries that they decide to favor when administrating some of these tax credits. So Snyder's argument was that having those agencies pick what industries and what specific sectors got these incentives kind of gave it an undue influence on how Michigan's economic development policy was administered. And so he kind of wanted to get the state out of picking winners in that instance and not having the state kind of drive that. And part of this is also kind of his argument that this was also a Band-Aid solution in terms of economic development because he felt that the Michigan business tax was kind of broken at the time that tax rates were too high and that these incentives were necessary to lower Michigan's overall business taxes so that industries would actually come to the state. Uh, So part of his idea for reform was not only get rid of these tax credits, but also overhaul the state's corporate tax structure so that there was less disincentive to come to the state and so that that kind of benefit wouldn't just go to specific industries or organizations that received targeted credits, but would be felt across all industries. Okay. Yeah. So the idea was to just lower the lower the bar in general, uh, rather than just lowering it for, say, filmmakers. Exactly. Okay. So the bad news was you're no longer likely to see Robert De Niro in a, you know, cafe side table in uh <laughs> in Birmingham <laughs> but uh <laughs> but other but other businesses may find it more welcoming less glamorous. exactly okay all right um and that but that changed last year you you briefly alluded to it a little earlier um what happened last year so last year kind of saw a bigger push to kind of get more tax incentives back into the state Uh, There were a lot of calls that, you know, other states are continuing to use these tax credits, and some see that as putting Michigan in a little bit of a disadvantage. There's also kind of a need 
with economic planning and development planning to kind of look towards the future. And even though Michigan has kind of improved since the Great Recession and growth is kind of finally starting to pick up a little bit in the state, even though it doesn't always feel like it, you kind of always have to have an eye towards the long term with economic development policy. And so some in the legislature felt that and the governor kind of agree ended up going and agreeing with when passing some of these incentive packages that the state needed uh, something else to kind of incentivize new large job program or new large job creation in the state. Exactly. And one of those was, I believe, Brownfield redevelopment. Yeah. So the transformational Brownfield plan was one of them. Um, it's a incentive that allows for an increase in uh, investment into sites that are generally going to be unused otherwise because there's either some environmental contamination or perception of that or blight, which makes those kind of properties very difficult to get anyone to actually invest into. Uh, and so the thought is with those credits that you uh, can incentivize a uh, company to go in and develop that site so that it kind of evens out the cost share between that site and some other sites, or maybe even kind of gives a little bit more of a nudge towards those sites. Okay. Talk a little bit about the Good Jobs Act and what it portends, uh, or what it actually means for the companies that qualify for this. So the way the Good Jobs Act was structured was it tried to incentivize uh companies to bring in new jobs into the state, but not just new jobs, jobs that generally had a higher uh, average wage than uh, what people are getting currently in their region. So it takes the prosperity region, which is just the regions that the state are divided up into for certain economic policies, and takes the average wage for those groups. And any company that creates a certain number of jobs at or above that wage is able to capture some of that income tax revenue that was paid from those individual jobs that were created. If they capture, or if, depending on the number of jobs that were created. These incentive programs are capped at 200 million over the lifetime of the Good Jobs Act. Uh, between this and the transformational brownfield plan, uh, these two credits can uh, spend a total of 1.2 billion over the lifetime of them. Now, this seems like a lot of money, but it's over the course of, you know, several years. But ultimately, that's still about 50 to 100 million in budgeted money that has to be given out. Compared to other tax credits, that's, you know, a pretty sizable amount. Right now, we're giving out about 600 million a year uh, in legacy credits from the Michigan business tax. Um, these are the ones that Snyder repealed when he decided to shift towards the corporate income tax. But they're still legacy credits that are from agreements that we made prior to foreclosing those in the future. Uh, most of those come from the Michigan Economic Growth Authority tax credits, which are a little more than $500 million annually right now. Um, so once you factor those out, these credits uh, that were issued are more than the entirety of all other remaining MBT credits. So tax revenues are used to fund the state's business, and the state's business is constrained by the state's budget. Um, what is the status of the current budget proposal, which is uh, will be Rick Snyder's last? 
So it's moving along in the legislature. Last week, the House omnibus uh, budget was reported to the floor. Uh, that just means that the committee wrapped up its work on it and presented it to the House as a whole. Uh, the Senate still has a couple of bills in committee as of right now, um, but it's kind of moving along as well. Overall, the budget is kind of smaller than what Governor Snyder has requested. There are a couple of programs where Governor Snyder requested an increase, where the legislature has kind of fought back on that. One of these, one of the prime examples of these, is the um, increase for prisoner food funding. Uh, the legislature is kind of balked at increasing that, uh, but even then. When you're kind of reducing an already reduced budget because Governor Snyder's proposal is smaller than the actual for the uh, previous fiscal year, you're getting a kind of mag an amplified reduction in the budget, which ends up being a, almost a half a billion dollar reduction in state budget from the previous fiscal year. Okay. Well, thank you, Jordan, for that outline of the outline that we publish every year um once again the outline of the or the outline of the michigan tax system which is the document that the research council has just posted can be found on our website crcmich.org it is comprehensive we also have a blog post about it which is also on our website crcmich.org which will allow you to get the high points without having to uh, explore every one of those 64 different taxes. Uh, Jordan, thank you so much for appearing on the podcast, and uh, I'll see you the next time I'm in Lansing. Sounds good. See you then. Okay, bye. I'm now joined by Eric Lufer, president of the Research Council, who is here to talk about a duty of government that was once mostly unremarkable, but isn't anymore. That is to say, the U.S. Census. The next national headcount is coming in 2020, and if early plans are in any, any indication, we'll be arguing over this too. The U.S. Commerce Department has proposed adding a citizenship status question to the count, which is raising concerns that some states will be undercounted because of the presence of undocumented immigrants who presumably won't be filling out their form for fear of legal repercussions. Now, Eric, you've written something about the importance to Michigan of an entirely accurate headcount, even if it includes people who aren't citizens. Why is that? Well, the census has huge implications for every state. Um, there's hundreds of millions of dollars, $800, million, $800 billion a year distributed by the federal government through about 300 programs. Uh, so having that money come to the state is very important. Uh, some of the reports I found is that about 10% of the Michigan budget is coming from federal funding by population-driven federal funding, to be right. more clear. So there's other funding that comes in categorical amounts and things like that. But funding based on population counts, um, we're talking Medicaid dollars, SNAP, the, the food stamp uh, programs, highway funding, all kinds of funding that comes in. Uh, so having a good count, a, a solid count that you feel like everyone was included, is in Michigan's best interest. We know that uh, from 2000 to 2010, the state lost population, and we've sort of turned the tide, and, and we're gaining population again, but we're not growing as fast as other states. 
So if we're going to get the funding that's so important to us coming from D.C., we need to count as many people as we can to help our ranking among the states and bringing in our share of the money. Uh, so, you know, we always know that there's going to be a head count. People don't want to be counted for whatever reason. The dangers with everything that's going on with the dynamics of undocumented people, the DACA, the um, people who are born here and don't have another home to go home to. Right. Um, it, it, there's a lot of social issues around this year's census that are creating a lot of fears of an increased undercount. And in Michigan, we need to do our homework, get a process in place that we can hopefully count as many people as we can. Right. And there's also an implication for our representation in Congress as well. Are we likely to lose another seat this time? Yeah. um, By all indications, we are going to lose yet another seat in Congress, the House of Representatives. Um, I think something extraordinary would have to happen with undercount in other states and full counting in Michigan for us not to lose that seat, that pretty much the writing's on the wall on that one. Okay. So um, potential loss of a seat, pro- likely loss of a seat. And if people, if undocumented um, residents do not fill out their form, also a loss of federal funding. Um, yeah, let's be clear. It's not just the undocumented. There's a lot of people, for whatever reason, uh, are just fed up with the government, don't want to be counted, uh, think this is all a bunch of baloney and just leave me alone. Um, so every census, there is people who choose not to be counted, and we know there will always be an undercount. The threat is much greater this year because of this dynamic of the uh, immigrants and those that are here legally and those that are here illegally, and what are the implications? Um, will that Will that information be shared and will it come back to haunt them? Right, exactly. Um, a lot of people tend to get a little paranoid about the census, I think, sometimes. If you if you are already, um, if you already tend to that way of thinking that the gov- there's, this is none of the gov- government's business, um, you know, I can see where people would be, would be reluctant to fill out their form accurately. But and I don't know that any of the uh, the usual uh, reassurances are going to help, but, you know, it's important. There's also a state funding aspect to this as well, isn't there? There is. Michigan has a couple different programs that are population-based. The most significant of those is what's called state revenue sharing. Right. Uh, the state, many years ago, back in the 1940s, created a system where the state will collect tax dollars and send it back to the local governments. And much of that, well, the whole thing is based on population, but some of it, they look at the fiscal p- capacity of the local governments to de- try to decide how, who gets how much. So it's all population-based. Um, and that's now you're divvying up among the local governments. It doesn't matter what other states are do. It's just there. Uh, also, the highway funding dollars that the state collects um, has a population element to it, so how much uh, gets divided. So between those two programs, we're talking over $2 billion of highway funding. And we've done a little we bit of... We need every dollar of highway funding <laughs> we can possibly get. Well, yeah, and this isn't going to decide the size of the pie, but how that pie gets divided among the communities. And certainly uh, you want to make sure that 
where the people are, where the needs are, that's where the money's going. Uh, so we just uh, published a report looking at our Michigan's urban-rural divide, and part of that was uh, looking at how our population has changed over the last five years and, and in the bigger picture over a longer period of time. And what we see going on is a lot more population growth in our urban areas than our rural areas. Uh, so this is going to have important implications for how this money is divided. There's needs everywhere. As you said, highway funding, there's no corner of the state that's immune from the underfunding of the highways and the potholes that are plaguing us. Um, if this trend holds true through the census and we see a major or you know, a bigger increase in the urban areas than the rural areas, that's going to have implications for how these dollars are distributed, more coming to the urban places than in the rural places. So, you know, again, as you think about where are these people who are potential uh, to not be counted, to say count, you know, just leave me alone. Right. Um, I, you know, I don't know. Are they equally in urban rural places? If not, then we need to really think about that and address that. Yeah. I think every state in the Midwest has had um, has seen an increase in um, Hispanic immigrants in recent years. Um, agricultural workers, I know, are a big presence on in West Michigan. Um, the whole state has has seen an increase in immigration, legal and otherwise. Um, is there any reason to believe that Michigan has a higher number of undocumented residents than other Midwestern states? I don't think so. You know, I I don't live among that community, so I, I, I can't speak authoritatively on there. But we do know that uh, the Hispanic population has been coming to southern parts of our nation, western parts of that nation, in a lot greater numbers than they're coming to the Midwest. And but are, they are coming here. Well, well, certainly they are yeah. coming here. And, and the again, the report that we just published was able to identify the Holland Grand Rapids corner of the state as a, a greater population. And I'm in Livonia. I know from experience that uh, downriver Detroit, um, there's a, a big enclave of people in that area. Uh, but I, you know, I think your question is, are, do we have more than other states? And I think I don't have any reason to think we do. Let me okay. put it that way. Okay. Um, what we do have, we have a lot more, um, immigrants from the Middle East coming here. Yes. And, and, you know, the national rancor over, um, those people are their unfriendly, all the religion, all these issues might force a number a greater number of those people uh, to ignore their to, census to form. ignore the you know just let me stay hidden I don't want to be part of this count I don't want to be risk my immigration status because of this okay well that is fascinating uh, the report I guess the we have two years before this all begins so that a lot of this is still to be thrashed out but in the meantime I think the takeaway is if you're if you're here put your hand up yeah, April April of 2020 is the magical date that uh, we want to know who you are, where you live, how many people are in your household. Uh, it's rather simple questions, how old they are, uh, basic information like that. And between now and April of 2020, 
the government, a lot of civic groups, a lot of nonprofit organizations are going to be doing their homework and laying the groundwork so that we can get a solid count at that time. Okay. Okay, then. Thank you, Eric. That will do it for this edition of Facts Matter, the Citizens Research Council of Michigan podcast. Remember, the council operates as a public resource, and all of our papers, along with blogs, op-eds, and other resources, are available for download on our website, crcmich.org. We operate as a nonprofit through the generosity of Michigan's corporations, foundations, and individuals like you. If you'd like to make a donation, go to our website, crcmich.org, and click on the contribution button on the homepage. We also welcome feedback, which you can send via email to crcmich at crcmich.org. I'm Nancy Derringer, and until next time, I leave you with the observation by our founding president, Lent Upson. The right to criticize government is also an obligation to know what you're talking about. Thank you.